of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 15. As you know, we have spent several weeks watching Jesus travel to Jerusalem, watching Jesus teach in the temple all day Wednesday of Passion Week. All day he was in the temple teaching. But he's making his way to the cross. And he is demonstrating in vivid color to us why he came. And these stories that Mark captures, Mark captures a very abbreviated or abridged version of Jesus' life and ministry. Very abridged. I think he was just trying to get it out there. He was probably, it's presumed that he was the first gospel written. He was writing to Gentile believers, probably a church in Rome. But uh, he writes a very abridged, but he captures a lot of the main points. We use the other, four go- the other three gospels to kind of merge them all together and get a bigger picture. But here is one very important event we need to not gloss over, not just read it and kind of move on because we've read it many times. We see here an innocent man suffering while a guilty man goes completely free. And that's why I called this the great exchange. It's a trade. And we're going to see it unfold right here before us. So let's read Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas, who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one called the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, it is, it is heart-wrenching to watch your son go through this. Because he had no crime that they could prove. He was perfectly, 100% innocent. It's even more convicting to know that you put him through this. You put him in this position, and he voluntarily went in this position because of your love for us. Your grace is pouring out through this story, and I pray, God, that this morning we can get a fresh dose of that in our own hearts and our minds to rejuvenate our spirits and to realize what a great salvation you have given us. In your son's name I pray. Amen. 
So the next slide is a, the slide I showed a few weeks ago of the trials, just so you kind of know where we're standing, okay? Jesus went through six trials in six hours that day. First, he went to the, uh, the home of Annas, the high priest, the former high priest, and that's caught, captured in John. John's the only one who records that. Then he went to Caiaphas's palace, which is kind of across a courtyard from Annas. And then he went to the high priest's palace where he's called up to the high priest's palace again in the daylight. And that's what we read about here in verse 1. And then they take him over to Pilate. And then we have Pontius Pilate trial number 1. And then Pilate figures out that Jesus is from Galilee. And him and Herod are both in town at the same time because they don't normally reside there. And Herod is ruler over Galilee. So he says, I'll send him to Herod. He's trying to find a way out of this situation. That's all Pilate's trying to do. And he wanted to see what Herod would do because they were always uh, enemies and opposed to one another. Herod, wanting to see Jesus do a miracle, and Jesus doesn't do anything, so he sends him back, telling Pilate he's innocent. So Pilate winds up sentencing him. And we're really kind of at the trial number three, um, parts of trial one and Palestine trial three of the civil trial. And that's kind of the, that's why it's, you say Mark, I say Mark is an abridged version. So Jesus is before Pilate, which fulfills a prophecy that the condemned righteous person and the exonerated criminal would happen. So this morning, the idea is that in this sermon, I want you to understand that the substitution of a sinless man for an evil murderer portrays the great exchange of righteousness for sin. I want you to see that this morning. What happens to turn a travesty of justice, and it's a travesty. We already pointed that out with the trials of the, of the Jewish side. It's a travesty of justice. What happens to turn this travesty of justice into the execution of God's plan to save souls? Well, unknowingly, the evil forces of a crowd, a Roman ruler, and some evil Jewish leaders, they all kind of collide and eventually produce God's salvation by their hand. They show and, and, and facilitate that. So I want us to look and see this morning, just looking and seeing at this whole passage, how God uses evil for eternal good. So first of all, we're, going to walk, we're just going to walk through this passage. I'm going to explain some highlights, some, talk about some points that kind of come from the other gospels. I want you to have a, a fuller understanding of what's going on at this trial before Pilate. Verse 1 as soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priest tied Jesus up, led him away, and then handed him over to Pilate. So by Jewish law, it's required that when you have a capital punishment trial, it must occur in the daylight. <clears throat> so be till, until it got light, until the sun broke the, dawn, broke the horizon, it wasn't daylight. So they just got back together to check the box, to kind of feel the requirement. They really didn't hold another trial. They came together and said, this is our plan. And they tied Jesus up and took him to Pilate. And so that's the only reason why they, they gather again to do that. They're just trying to, well, they're hypocritical. They're just trying to make cover their bases in a sense. But why did they tie Jesus up? I mean, Jesus hasn't even raised a hand. Peter's cut the ear off of one guy, but that's, that's, Jesus has never been violent. Why would they tie him up? Because they want to convince everybody in that city that he's a criminal. Because they're going to go from the southwest corner of Jerusalem to the northwest corner where, the, uh, where Pilate is residing. So it's, it's a trek across the city. So people are going to see Jesus tied up. 
They're going to see that he is being led to Pilate. And why did they lead him to Pilate? Because Roman rule, because they were under Roman rule, regardless of what they say, they were under Roman occupation. Roman rule would not allow those provincials, those people in that, the conquered territory, to commit or execute prisoners. They wanted to control that. And for good reason, if, if you're wanting to keep control, keep control and keep peace, um, you want to not let people execute their own prisoners. So that's why those two things are happening. Then we get to verse 2 and 3. So Pilate asked him, being Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And, he, and Jesus answered him, you say so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. So here he is, he's before Pilate. And Pilate's first question to me seems a little bit lame. Like, you're just, you're just parroting, you're just repeating what you're hearing these guys around you say. You're not asking any investigative type questions. And so Jesus answers, you say so. Literally in the Greek, it's just you say. That's, that's your opinion, or that's what you think. That's what you're saying, but that doesn't make it so. What he's doing is he's challenging Pilate a little bit. Now, here are the accusations. Luke records the accusations that the chief priest brought against, brought against Jesus. First of all, he's misleading our nation. Can't prove that, really. The second one, he's telling everybody to not pay taxes. Jesus never did that. Matter of fact, Jesus paid taxes. We have proof of that. And he's claiming to be a king. Jesus never used that terminology. Never used that terminology. So... You know, Rome didn't take kindly to people who tried to evade their taxes, who tried to create insurrection and rebellion. They didn't, they didn't like that. But really, the Jewish leaders are lying outright. Why didn't they bring the charge that they had gotten Jesus over? Blasphemy. Because Pilate could care less about blasphemy. Yahweh is not his God, so he didn't care. Now, if he'd have blasphemed the, the, the emperor, that might have been a, a different story, but... Anyway, so it's all just a bunch of lies, and Pilate does see through some of it. He's, he's like, eh, I don't think I buy that. So he's seeing through some of it, and Jesus' answer now puts the burden of proof on Pilate. He says, you say. Where's the proof, you know? He's, he's basically, he's challenging, you know. Um, he never used the term he was the king of the Jews. He never used that term. Um, he talked about a kingdom, the kingdom of God, but he didn't talk about his kingdom per se. But in John's account, there's more exchange between Pilate and Jesus. And Jesus explains to Pilate, the kingdom is not of this world and what truth is and, and his position in, in the, both of those. But Pilate really doesn't understand it all. But Jesus, with his little simple answer here, he's pointing out the fact that Pilate hasn't given this case much thought. He's not giving it any effort. He's phoning it in, as they say. Jesus wants Pilate to know that he sees that Pilate is really using this for his own advantage, his own agenda. And that's the story of Pontius Pilate. It's probably the story of just about any politician in the Roman Empire. They were always looking for an advantage. Pilate's character and, and the history already, he, started, he took over in Palestine in AD 26, and he immediately made a bunch of people mad. He brought... Um, standards or what, what would you, we would call banners, something like this, into the city with the emperor's uh, uh, picture on it. He brought that in, and of course the Jews interpreted it as idolatry. So they protested. They went all the way to Caesarea Maritime, which is up on the coast, to Pilate's residence to protest it. 
And they protested for a long time. They demonstrated. They, they, they were there a long time. And Pilate got fed up with it, so he sent his guards disguised as civilians among the crowd, and they beat the crowd and killed a bunch of people. Well, Pilate got scolded for that from Rome. And that, that was just one of them. Um, he, he had done this. He had this antagonistic attitude. And he had this anti-Semitic attitude. He didn't like the Jews. And he especially didn't like being in the dry, deserty place of Palestine. Well, what, our, what Israel called the promised land, he called nothing but dirt and dust and heat and frustration. But you know, it's interesting that Luke actually records that Pilate wanted to release Jesus. Now, don't think for a second Pilate wanted to release Jesus because he thought Jesus was the Son of God or that Jesus was a, 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 an innocent good man or that Jesus was who he said he was. He, he didn't think that. He wasn't really wanting to release Jesus for Jesus' sake. He was wanting to release Jesus for his own sake. If he could release Jesus and, and justify it, he would get one over on the, on the Jewish leaders who were always a burr under his saddle, a bee in his bonnet. He was, he was always being frustrated by them. So Pilate wanted to release, release Jesus, but it was for his own gain. Now look at verses 4 and 5. Pilate questioned him again, are you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still not, did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. Now, <clears throat> Jesus didn't respond because there was no reason to respond. None of the charges were founded. Now, most of us will start talking, trying to defend ourselves. Even if the charges are false, we'll try to come up with some answer. And usually we give more away of what, what our crimes are when we start talking. Jesus didn't have any reason to talk. And, and Pilate was amazed because this is bizarre behavior. Most anybody that's on trial is going to try to defend themselves. And like I mentioned last week, they don't have our judicial system. Last time, they don't have our judicial system. They don't have a defense lawyer that's, that's watching Jesus' back. So it's amazing. He's like, they're not even, he's not even denying it. Well, I think it also is another clue for us. Jesus is fully resigned to fulfill his Father's will. He is committed. Not my will, but your will, he prayed in the garden. So he's fully con convinced that he's going to do this. He's not doubting. He's not wavering. Um, you know, and the funny thing is, Jesus is falsely accused of many things that, that Pilate's actually guilty of, or that the Jewish leaders are actually guilty of, or that we're actually guilty of. That's, Jesus is accused of all kinds of things that were actually sins of humanity. Because Jesus was without sin. There was no evidence to convict him. But he remains silent like the lamb before the slaughter that Isaiah 53, 7 mentions. So then we get to verse 6. Kind of a turn of events here. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. Now this is Mark reminding us about this custom. This is, this is him like, okay, just in case his readers didn't know about this custom. But this is a Roman world, Roman empire-wide custom. Every, they didn't do it on Passover, but they did it sometime during the year. They would release a prisoner to kind of show that Rome was merciful. <laughs> if you've ever thought about a crucifixion, there is no mercy in Rome. But this was an act to kind of appease the people. And it would be done everywhere. Pilate did it on Passover. He thought, got a bunch of people here, some more, more crowd there. He, he could control the press of it, you know, he had because Jerusalem swelled to probably near you know a million people on Passover so he thought I'll do it on Passover so that he's trying to show the world how magnanimous he is in his reign 
You know, but why did Rome release prisoners like that? There was nothing, nothing really sincere about it because I don't think they really were trying to be merciful. Here's one thing Rome knew. If that prisoner was, if that prisoner was really convicted in a criminal, he'd probably be arrested within a, a week again for doing something against Rome. Or he might be killed in some sort of conflict. Um, Rome, Rome knew that, it w- that the guy would be back in jail pretty soon. And then in verses 7 through and 8, Let's see that. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder, committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. So here we have Barabbas. This this guy enters the scene. Who is he? Well, he's a rebel. He's a Jew who is fighting against Rome every chance he can get. Um, There was an incident in Jerusalem very recently, maybe that very week at some point. Um, Luke mentions it more, a little bit more, but there's no historical record of it except Luke. But there was some incident, some rebellion, some insurrection, little incident going on in Jerusalem. And Barabbas murdered somebody, probably a soldier. He probably killed a soldier. Um, and now he is in prison, and his name comes up in the trial of Jesus. Now, where did that come from? Well, he... He, I think Pilate, in Matthew, Pilate's the first person that mentions it. But I think his name was on everybody's lips, like Lee Harvey Oswald was. You know, kind of like everybody knew Barabbas had been arrested for killing some Roman soldier, which in most Jews' eye was a favorable thing. They thought, this is great. Anything against Rome wins for us, you know. But um, the crowd brought it up in the other Gospels. We don't know. I just think his name was on everybody's mind, and it was real easy. And the, and the Jewish leaders could have done the same thing. They could have brought it up. They could have whispered it in the crowd. Barabbas actually means, this is what the word actually means, son of the father. Son of the father. Bar being the, the Aramaic word for son. Abbas or Abba being the word for father. So it's kind of a fitting name, right, for the situation. The son of a father. The son of the father. Not the father in God, but... His name points to the entire human race because we are all sons and daughters of a father somewhere. Barabbas represents us. He does. In, in living color, he represents us. Now, most of us don't want to think of ourselves as a murderer. Took care of that in Matthew 5. If anyone's been angry with the, their brother, he's basically committed murder in his heart. We all inherit sin from our parents. It's, it's human nature. It's passed down. Look at verses 9 and 10. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. So Pilate is, Pilate is stirring the pot. He's poking at the Jewish leaders. He, he's in constant conflict with them. Now, I don't know why he would ask the crowd to give them that kind of authority. I think he thought... Surely they won't want to crucify Jesus, the king of the Jews. They, they think he's the king of the Jews. He was thinking if he could get the crowd turned to his side, release Jesus, he would have a political victory over the Jewish leaders. Because he was always looking for his advantage. But Pilate may have been looking for a way to release Jesus, but only if it gained him something. That's Pilate. We, we sometimes read it and we go, well, maybe he was a kind of a good guy. No, he was not. 
History has recorded that as well, that he was not. So I want you to think about this now. If Pilate was firmly convinced that Jesus was innocent, not deserving death, he should have released him, right? Why didn't he release him? He had the authority. He was the governor, the prefect. He was in charge. Well, let's talk about that a second. Jesus was not released for two reasons. First of all, the human factor. The human factor. Pilate feared the mob. Pilate feared the crowd. He didn't want another riot on his record. He'd already had too many of those. Uh, the, the chief priest wanted Jesus dead, and that was how the crowd was getting all stirred up. So the human factor um, was just he was fearful of his own advancement or his own detriment if he didn't release Jesus, or if he did release Jesus. He saw a gain for his future relations by killing Jesus for them since they had found him guilty of something. They thought, well, okay, they've convinced the crowd he's guilty of something. I'm not going to go against the crowd. And that was most politicians' problems. But the second reason is really the more important reason to us. The second reason is the divine factor. The divine factor. God wanted Jesus to die a certain way under the hand of certain people by a certain means of execution. That's what God wanted. He prophesied it centuries and centuries and centuries before. It was a fact. God wanted his son to die so our sins could be forgiven. God's advantage was to use these sinful and evil men to fully prove and to fully demonstrate his sovereign power, his sovereign glory and redemption of souls. And we may not like that thought, but that's what God was doing because that's how much he loves us. He was pulling this off for us. He was doing it because he wanted his son to provide the salvation that we needed. And God, God arranged things to put Pilate in charge at the right time in the right settings to carry out this execution. Because in the book of Acts, you can read of several Roman dictators or leaders who didn't care anything about religious stuff and, and would dismiss cases, one against Paul. They completely dismissed it. He's like, if you're bringing me your stuff about Jewish laws and your God, don't even bring them here. So if that guy had been in charge, he'd have probably just shut them down right away and released Jesus. But Pilate was the guy that God chose to use for this. And that's ultimately why Pilate didn't release Jesus. Let's look at verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Now, how was a, a crowd so quickly turned against Jesus? Well, because the crowd had sinful hearts, like we do. The crowd was open to that kind of thing. But here's some, here's some whys. First of all, they were given a choice between a blasphemer of their God and someone who was defeating or fighting against Rome. Now, this is a very religious crowd. Remember, they're there for Passover. So they're very religious. Someone has blasphemed God, Yahweh, our God, and that's what they were convinced of. The, crowd, the, the chief priests had circulated that. So that's the first why. It was very easy for them to go, oh, no, no choice. Now, the poor teaching of the scribes, that's another reason. The poor teaching of the scribes that, the, that the people, led the people to believe that the Messiah would not be imprisoned by Gentiles. Now, if you read Isaiah 53, you can't get anything but imprisonment. 
But their teaching had taught all the people that the Messiah will come like a King David, like conquering and, and, and run everybody off and we'll have our promised land back. So their poor teaching led people to believe that the Messiah would never be imprisoned. And then they also kind of believed that, that if the Messiah, for whatever reason, was captured, he would eventually conquer them and, and set himself free. So if they were wrong about Jesus, he would, he would correct it real soon. You know, if they go to put him on the cross and he comes down and brings legions of angels to defeat everybody, they would be fine with that. But they sure couldn't let blasphemy get by. That's, that's the mindset they probably had. So turning this crowd against Jesus was really easy considering the way the people thought. The mob is always very fickle. Public opinion is always very fickle. So when you're reading the news and when you're reading about people, you can see how the crowd quickly turns and changes its mind about someone. So they stirred up the crowd. They changed their minds. And look at verse 12. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? He keeps using that phrase. Well, the reason he's using it is two reasons. One, he's, he's poking at the, uh, at the Jewish leaders, hey, the king of the Jews, you're king of the Jews, and he's poking at the people a little bit. The other is, he's providing himself plausible deniability when he does crucify him, that I crucified someone claiming to be a king. And that's why he posted on the cross above Jesus' head. But he asked the crowd again, what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? Now, I'm, I asked myself this question this week. Who is the governor here? Why is he giving them that authority? Why is he giving them, who's in charge of this flying circus here? I mean, he's seeking more leverage is what he's doing. Pilate's always still trying to gain his own advantage. And if he was able to absolve himself of Jesus' death, if he could get the crowd on his side, that among his wife's dreams, there, there's an account of his wife saying, don't have anything to do with Jesus I had a terrible dream about him last night. Let him go. And then Pilate washes his hands of Jesus' death as if to absolve himself. He sends him to Herod trying to do the same thing. Let it be Herod's problem. See, I think Pilate saw the wrong that it was to crucify Jesus. He just didn't have the intestinal fortitude to stop it. He didn't have the, the willpower, the strength of character to stop it. And so Pilate gives in to the mob because he has too many riots already in his short tenure. Their voices begin to prevail, as Luke records in Luke 23, 23. A riot was feared by Pilate and the crowd not listening to him, Matthew 27, 24. It's, it's getting intense, okay? The crowd's getting out of hand. So Pilate eventually has to proclaim it. But he must give in because he opened that door for them. But just remember, God's still involved in this. As, tra as tragic as it looks, God's still involved with it, the whole thing. Verse 13. Again, they shouted, crucify him. This is obviously the second time they've yelled that when they uses the word again. So we don't have that recorded here, but when you read some of the other accounts, the second time the crowd screams for crucifixion, for death. The mob of Jews had seen the horrors of the cross, yet they cried out for it anyway. Crucifixion was terrible. It was the most, it's, it's the most uh, heinous way of killing somebody. It was terrible. But this mob, who five days earlier had brought palm leaves and 
coats on the ground and prays Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna. Five days later, they're calling for his death. They're calling and commanding his crucifixion. The word for crucify there is the word starson. Starson. It's the Greek word starson, and it, it's an imperative. It's not an indicative or any other of those moods of the English verbs. It is an imperative. It is a command. The crowd is now commanding Pilate. The governor has become the governed. The prefect has become ruled in this scene. He's being told by the crowd what to do. And so, in verse 14, Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Crucify him. He's trying to find evidence to justify it. He hasn't really found any. The crowd's ignoring the questions and they command. This, this anti-Rome crowd, this crowd does not love Rome at all. This anti-Rome crowd chooses a Roman form of execution for their Messiah. How bizarre is that? How quick the tide turns? How fickle is the mob? But unless you know God is involved, it makes all the sense in the world. In verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having flogged Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. The end is decided by Pilate. And it's by his fear of the mob that he does decide to crucify Jesus. Pilate's career was full of riots. Matter of fact, the end of his career in AD 36 in, in Palestine area was, was because of him crushing a riot in Samaria. It ended his political career. He's never heard from again after that incident. He was summoned to Rome to explain himself and vanished. No one ever heard or recorded anything else. But Pilate had Jesus flogged. He kind of hoped he would change his mind because in John's account, he has Jesus flogged and then he brings him back out and says, behold the man. And he was hoping the crowd would say, okay, great, you punished him, we're all good. But that didn't really happen. Flogging, whew, flogging is terrible. It's used with a whip that's on a stick. It has a whip and then it goes out to nine cattails, they call them, or nine tails. Some of them may have bones, pieces of metal, pieces of rock in them. And it's meant to just destroy your flesh. Rip muscle from the bone. It's, it's, a, it's agonizing. Um, if you saw the movie The Passion and there, that representation of it, it is pretty accurate. Um, flogging. It was done to shorten the time on the cross for most people who were being executed, to create blood loss so that they wouldn't be on the cross too long. But sometimes they would, they would shorten the flogging so that the person would suffer on the cross longer. Like I'm telling you, crucifixion was the most heinous way of dying. And Pilate sent Jesus to flogging and he released Barabbas, a convicted murderer. He wasn't waiting in jail for trial. He was convicted. He let the murderer go free. He exchanged the criminal for the sinless son of God. How'd you like that on your, on your tombstone? Once he issues that decree, it's, all, it's irreversible. And Jesus was pronounced by that human court at that point in time as guilty. Even though he wasn't, Pilate pronounced him guilty. By this event, God has graphically shown us the, the, and depicted the very heart of his plan of salvation, the exchange. God tells us here, he exchanged human sin for divine righteousness. And that 
brothers and sisters, is grace. It's all grace. I hope you see that in there. I hope you see it. I want to explore it a little bit more. I want, I want to come at it from Barabbas' side. Barabbas is sitting in his cell while this is going on. He hears the crowd going, and he hears them yelling and screaming and all that going on. He doesn't have any idea what's going on. Um, he's, he's thinking, maybe they're asking for, he, maybe he, he hears his name. They're asking for my release, or maybe they're asking for my death. Who knows what's going on? But a jailer suddenly comes to his door and unlocks his prison cell and probably chains him up, puts some kind of chains or shackles on him and chains him up and brings him out to the praetorium, Pilate's courtroom. And he's thinking, oh, this is, can't be good. If I'm going to Pilate's courtroom, it's, this, is, this is over, you know. Um, but then he gets there, and he sees another man. Another man who may be beaten, flogged, bleeding everywhere. A crown of thorns on his head, a purple robe. Like he's, he's obvious they're mocking him. And he's standing there going, why is he here? He may not even know who Jesus is. I don't know. He's never, never given us a clue whether they would know who he is. But he, he's just wondering, why is this guy here? He must have done something. He must have done something wrong to be here. Barabbas assumes he's being punished. Jesus is being punished. And he's thinking, well, okay, Jesus is standing over there bleeding. He's already been punished. Maybe they're about to release him and bring me before the crowd and see what the crowd thinks about me. He's standing there in chains, in shackles. And all the while, he keeps hearing Pilate ask these questions of the crowd. What do you want me to do with Jesus, the king of the Jews here? And he keeps hearing them crucify him, crucify him. And he's like, oh, this is a tough crowd. And in one instance, there, he, he hears them say, release for us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. They hear that. He hears that. And eventually, after Pilate washes his hands and says, your death be on you, and the Jews say, the blood of Jesus be on us and on our children. They declare that in Matthew. Pilate looks over to guard, gives him a nod. The guard comes over, undoes the chains, and lets them fall. Barabbas is confused, probably. <laughs> this has got to be a trick. The minute I, the minute I leave, I'm going to get stuck in the back. And then the guard kind of shoves him, says, you're free to go. And I'm sure he's walking backwards all the way out, wondering. And he notices the guard is angry because he's getting released. He murdered a soldier. It may have been this, that guy's friend. And Jesus is being led away to be crucified. Barabbas' mind must be going a thousand miles an hour. What is going on? I was just freed, and that guy was sentenced to death. Why? Why? And that, my friends, is the great exchange. That is it. Barabbas did nothing but be a murderer, and God released him, and Jesus died. In his place, in our place for our sins if we trust him. So from Mark's abbreviated account of this trial, this verdict and this sentence, we really should come away with one truth in our hearts, one truth in our minds. God exchanged all of humanity's sin, their crimes and atrocities against his commands and character for his sinless son. 
That's what he did. That's the great exchange. Let me explain kind of what happened here and what happens to us because of this great exchange, okay? First of all, we need righteousness to be right with God. We need righteousness to be acceptable to God, and we don't have it. What we have is sin. Romans 3, 21 through 26. I want you to listen to Paul talk about this, the sin we have. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. We are were despicable. Our, our, our lives are like filthy rags. Our deeds are like dirt. So God... He has what we need and don't deserve, righteousness. We don't deserve it. He has that. And we have what God hates, sin. We have that. That's on us. So what's God's answer to this situation? God's answer to this situation is Jesus Christ. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemns sin in the flesh, Romans 8, 3. His answer is Christ, the Son of God, who died in our place and bore our condemnation. Whose flesh bore the condemnation? His. Whose sins were being condemned? Ours. The great exchange. Here it is again in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. Paul's again elaborating it to the church at Corinth. He says, For the love of Christ compels me. That since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the whole purpose of the great exchange is for us to tell the world you can be reconciled to God, the holy, righteous, perfect God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's it. That's the great exchange. That's what Paul's talking about that's what happens there in, in a great illustration. A while ago, we sang, for you are my righteousness. He is our righteousness. We don't have any righteousness in us without Jesus Christ. 
And in Christ's obedient death, God fulfills and vindicates his righteousness and imputes, he gives us credit for Christ's righteousness. I mean, what a deal, right? Best trade you'll ever make. Our sin is on Christ. His righteousness is on us. That's what happens at the cross. Barabbas represents us perfectly, and he got grace. He got to drop his chains and walk away. No longer charged with that crime. So we can hardly stress too much that Christ is God's answer to our greatest problem, which is our sin. You can't love Christ too much. You can't think about him too much or thank him too much or depend on him too much. He is everything. All our forgiveness, all our justification, all our righteousness is in Christ. If we use anything else, if we think for a minute that we're, we were good and that's why God saved us, it's a lie. You weren't. None of us were. That was the exchange that God made for us. That is the gospel, the good news, that our sins are laid on Christ and his righteousness is laid on us. Like the song we say, Behold the man upon the cross, his sins upon my sh- his shoulders, my sins upon his shoulders. This is the great exchange, and it becomes ours not by works, not by anything we've done. For it is by grace you are saved, through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that none of us can boast. You can't earn it. You can't get it on your own. And you must always remember that. That's the good news, is that you don't have to do anything to be right with God. This is the good news that lifts burdens, saves souls, gives joy, makes us strong. And if we believe it, it can change our lives. Barabbas got a second chance. I don't know how he used it, but he got a second chance. So in in six hours that day, Jesus went on trial six times. Six times he went on trial during that wee hours of the morning kind of thing. And in those six hours, he is convicted and the criminal is released. I mean, what kind of justice is that? That's the greatest of all because God was involved rectifying and reconciling our sinful hearts to him through Jesus Christ. You know, freedom. We think a lot about freedom. We think about freedom in in this country a lot. We love it. We fight for it. We vote for it. At every turn, we're trying to make sure we don't lose some of our temporal, earthly freedoms that we've earned or that we have. But I want to think about these two men. Who was free at that moment in time? Barabbas or Jesus? What kind of freedom do, they, do we really need? Was Barabbas free? He was, he was free to go do what he wanted at that point. But Jesus was truly free because he was doing the will of God. And he knew that no matter what happened, it was right. It was right. Brothers and sisters, don't ever forget that this life is short and this life is temporary and any freedoms you have here are temporary. The best freedom we can ever have is the freedom that has eternal value. The freedom we find in Jesus Christ. Even in shackles and in prison, Paul was more free than Nero the emperor. And we're more free if we're in that situation. When we see our souls set free from sin's curse, then we're truly free. And we know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And when the sun sets you free, you're free indeed, right? All right? So let's pray this morning as we have our pastoral prayer. Let's pray 
in praise for what the man did for us, for what Jesus did for us on the cross. His wounds have paid our ransom. His sentence exonerated our soul. So let's pray that we never forget this great exchange. If you'd like to come to the front and have a time of, of prayer, come on, we'll pray silently for a little bit, and then I'll close us out. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. <laughs>